When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. We were gone for quite a while. But no matter what happens next, the galaxy still needs its guardians. One of those statements is objectively true. The other, debatable. Chris Pratt there is Peter Star-Lord Quill. And yes, there has been a significant gap between Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Six years, in fact. Up for debate, how much we still need them. That review plus an MCU villain's draft. It's all ahead. Don't you dare touch Emil Blonsky, the abomination. It's all yours on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Let's just go ahead and tease our Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 review, Josh. Your tweet read, Welp, we have a new worst MCU, and I think you're crazy. <laughs> okay. I mean, second worst. We could split hairs if you want. <laughs> I may want that review later in the show. We also have Chicago critic Steve Procopion to talk about the Chicago Critics Film Festival, which opens this weekend. And after a couple month hiatus, like it or not, the return of Massacre Theater. Oh, yeah. First, here's your brief reminder to help us reach new listeners by leaving us a rating and a positive review. We want to thank Cafe Con Leche who left some kind words for us on Apple Podcasts this past week. Cafe writes, My husband is a big movie person, and he introduced me to the podcast. Even as a casual moviegoer, I look forward to the show's honest opinions and background on the films. Thank you, Cafe Con Leche. I also want to say thank you, Cafe Con Leche, for being delicious. Okay. If you want to share your rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, we would greatly appreciate it. It is time for our first ever and probably our last, hopefully our last, Marvel Cinematic Universe Villains Draft in honor of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. We will have five picks each as we are a show that is want to do top five lists from time to time. And that means that someone has to start the draft, Josh. We went about that undertaking as we usually do. We went to our trivia master. Thomas Todd, and he came up with this MCU villains-related question. All we had to do was be the person who got closest to the right answer. Okay, here was the question. In an interview with Cinema Blend, Michael B. Jordan estimated Killmonger's kill count to be what? He based this on how many scars were applied to his body by the makeup department, which he would use a trip to the sauna each night to sweat off. There you go. How many kills can we chalk up? to Killmonger, at least according to Michael B. Jordan's estimation. We'll go ahead and let it simmer a little bit for our listeners. You can guess what your number would be. 
And now that we've done that, Josh, why don't you go ahead and say what your guess was? I was way off, way, way off. And yeah. let me tell you, my, the initial number that popped in my head was one three times what I ended up saying. And even that would have been way off. So yep. <laughs> I think I had, was it 63? It was, 63. It was below 100. I know that. Yeah. I ultimately went with 150. Sam, our producer, not part of this draft, would have actually ended up with the first pick. He guessed slightly higher, well, significantly higher at 325, but it's nowhere close. According to the quote that Thomas Todd pulled out of some interview, it goes like this. When I asked Michael B. Jordan about the precise number of scars that Killmonger wears, a.k.a. the number of people that he has personally killed, the actor couldn't give me a precise number, but offered that it was somewhere around... 2200 making him one of the world's most prolific murderers i think it's the scars thing that threw me off because i can't imagine right that the makeup department is putting 2200 scars <laughs> on jordan every day for film he's not that big not that big this is no thanos <laughs> no but that means i ended up with the first pick and sorry josh it's just you and me no serpentine, uh -huh. no snake draft. Of course. No back-to-back -back pick. This, this is the time I lose the opening uh -huh. pick. We are also restricting ourselves only to Marvel films. So no Marvel TV. You've seen more of that than I have, but we both agreed that it made sense to restrict ourselves just to what I'm going to call the MFCU, which incidentally will also be the name they assign to the future Nick Fury standalone series. Okay. <laughs> Let's go ahead and jump in, Josh. I do have the first pick. And as all drafts here on Film Spotting will forever be about me pursuing revenge on you, mm. for in our first ever draft of A24 films, taking my beloved Ladybird yes. with your first pick. Now, wait, wait, wait. It brings me. Before yeah. you make your pick, I, got, uh -huh. I, got, I have a question for you. Okay. Actually, this is a question that came on my Larson and Film Facebook page. I think it's a good one. It comes from Cortland Funk. When I suggested we were doing this and wanted to know who should be on my board, Cortland said, what's the purpose of the draft? Are we making these villains fight or are we just picking the coolest characters? So I don't know if how you came about forming your board, how you prioritized who you're hoping to get. Does that help you? Does that I'm hoping it throws you off and you have to reconsider your entire strategy now. But <laughs> nice try. Nice try, but no, that's not going to impact me. Definitely not expecting them to fight. And I'm not really going by cool either. I'm going with just most compelling. The villain I find the most interesting, the villain that helped make their film significantly more enjoyable. Now, you could have then approached that almost like an MVP scenario where you could wonder if that movie would have greatly suffered or suffered more without this character. I didn't really weigh that. I just went by the villain I thought was the most interesting. What okay. about you? Yeah, I probably ended up the same direction. Didn't think about them fighting. I mean, I did. That was kind of fun, but uh, that's not <laughs> how fun. I guided my my potential choices. I probably have different reasons for each one that I do hope to land, which hopefully I'll get to. I'm excited to hear that, and I am excited to hear your picks and how this will all shake out. I really only know for sure. I think I know what one of your five picks ideally would be, and I definitely know because you said it on social media. But even if you hadn't said it, I would know that you're a big fan of the aforementioned 
Eric Killmonger, just like I am. So I will now say that it brings me great pleasure to take what I know would have been your first pick, but also is genuinely my first pick. My favorite MCU villain is Killmonger, as portrayed by Michael B. Jordan in Black Panther. When we reviewed the film in 2018, I asked then who was a better MCU villain, even though we've had like 27 more of them in the five years that have passed, he still remains my favorite. I called him a real villain and all that entails. He's he's flesh and blood, but he's dangerous and he's scary and he's motivated by pain, a lot of pain and a recognition of injustice as well, which gives him an added layer of depth. And he's one of those great villains where his methods and ultimate goal may be questionable, but we completely understand his motivation and we empathize with him. And we empathize with him despite the fact that I wouldn't say Michael B. Jordan, at least rewatching some clips today, I wouldn't say that he is Killmonger tries to elicit a ton of sympathy. I think about the great scene when he challenges T'Challa in Wakanda. I love his snarl. I'm exercising my blood right. The challenge for the mantles of King and Black Panther. Do not do this, T'Challa. As the son of Prince Injobo, he is within his rights. He has no rights here. The challenge will take weeks to prepare. Weeks? I don't need weeks. The whole country ain't gotta be there. I just need him and somebody to get me out of these chains. He has no sense of reverence for the place or the royalty or respect for them. And again, we understand at this point that he's not really wrong to feel the way that he does. And like a lot of these good villains, I think we're going to get to, Josh, he truly challenges the protagonist. He's not there just to antagonize the protagonist. And that line when he says, hey, auntie, mm. <laughs> is is so good and so funny. So he's one of those bad guys who's not conflicted at all. He has total conviction, which is one of the things that makes him so scary. But it is rooted fundamentally in his humanity and his emotion and also his intellect. He's someone we recognize as a brilliant character. And yeah, he's a badass to boot. Yeah, he would almost overwhelm the movie if you didn't have Chadwick Boseman's gravity to counter what Michael B. Jordan is doing. I love how they play off each other in this movie, even though they don't have a ton of scenes together. But there's a nice balance with the energy that Jordan is bringing as this villain and then Bozeman has as, uh, again, this this royal reserved figure. But that's what you need when you've got someone going so aggressively the other way like Killmonger is. Yeah, and it's funny because I look back at my notes, of course, from this review. And I talked about that dynamic a little bit in the same way I recently talked about the dynamic between Michael B. Jordan as more of the T'Challa character versus Jonathan Majors. And of course, we'll stick here to just Jonathan Majors, the actor on screen in Creed Three. But I talked about them very much the same way where Michael B. Jordan almost overwhelms Chadwick Boseman. He's so good and so charismatic a villain, the same way Jonathan Majors is in Creed 3. So it's the no-brainer pick, and I guess at this point it's up to me to try to assemble a team, if you are looking at this as a team of villains, that can at least top and topple whatever you end up with, even though you'll have Killmonger at the top there. I think, you know, all right, if Killmonger is the number one pick, I think Tom Hiddleston's Loki 
has been the more valuable presence across the entirety of the MCU. He's he's the MCU MVP, you could say. And over on uh, my Facebook page, Ken Jones uh, was thinking about this in similar terms. He said to borrow from NBA parlance, he has a high usage rate. And yet, despite that, I don't think this is ever a character I have seen pop up in any of the movies and been anything but delighted by his presence. I am always glad Loki shows up, whatever Loki we get. And right from the start, I think, you know, he had this sort of prankster. We we expected this sort of prankster quality that Hiddleston would bring. But the character keeps growing and becoming more than that over the course of his other appearances. But even in the beginning or fairly early on after Thor, you know, in the Avengers, in 2012's The Avengers, I loved what he brought to that standalone film as a standalone villain, this petulant alien at that point. We think of him as this alien with a god complex. How about that speech that he gives to the cowering earthlings when he tells them you were made to be ruled? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. So this is just a great villain performance in a single film. And yeah, from there, the character only got richer, causing mischief while imprisoned in the dungeon of Asgard in Thor, the Dark World. I know not a favorite movie for a lot of MCU fans, but I think Loki is great there and showing all of the trouble he can get into, even when he is somewhat restrained. The chemistry Hiddleston has with Chris Hemsworth, one of my favorite MCU actors, is so crucial to his character, to both of their characters, to Thor being such an interesting presence as well. And it begins in mistrust. Then there's antagonism. Then they hit a point where they're kind of working together. I would call it like a conniving chemistry he has in Thor Ragnarok, where he becomes, Loki becomes this untrustworthy partner against Kate Blanchett's Hela. So there's another sort of wrinkle dynamic to the character. Then he gets this great moment of possible redemption at the beginning of Infinity War, where he tries to play a trick on Thanos, but fatally fails. Almighty Thanos, I, Loki, Prince of Asgard, Odin's son, the rightful king of Jotunheim, god of mischief, do hereby pledge to you my undying fidelity. Undying. You should choose your words more carefully. So, thankfully, we do get more variants of Loki even after that. The MCU knows they had a good thing going with Loki. They're going to ride it as long as they can. And yeah, like I said, always happy to see him on screen. Pretty happy to have him as my number one pick. It's a good pick. It's the right pick, I'd say, even if Loki nowhere to be found on my board. And that's tough for me to say because I understand, I understand his importance to the MCU, as you expressed so nicely. I looked at a couple MCU villains rankings out there just to see how it 
lined up with where I was going and four different lists, Josh, they had Loki. The lowest Loki was, was four. He was two on two other lists and one on another. So I totally get it. And I also, I have to say, really like Tom Hiddleston, not only as an actor, but I did interview him on the show a while back when he was in that Hank Williams biopic and is in the top five of most genial, just delightful guests to talk to. So it doesn't bring me any pleasure whatsoever to not love Loki, but the merry prankster thing has always just worn me out. Oh my gosh. This is, you didn't need to say any of that. You're just, you're just um, registering your list nil and void, null and void <laughs> at this point. I mean, I come on I, to not even consider Loki. What are we doing here? <laughs> well, we'll see what we're doing. I'm probably going to further show my lack of MCU bona fides with my number two pick. Not that people are going to, I think, really question it. I don't think you'll even really question my choice of this character. You might just question how high. I'm choosing this character with my second pick, but I don't want to risk losing this character. I'll say, Josh, we're only two picks in. You've only made one, but you have exhausted my patience. But I do hope you understand that even now, what's about to happen, this is me being reasonable. Daryl K. Patterson over at the Film Spotting Facebook page said, I thought Michael B. Jordan was the best villain until it included a gif of Elizabeth Olsen as Wanda Maximoff or Scarlet Witch. So I'm going with a recent MCU movie, one I didn't even care for all that much, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, but Scarlet Witch was my favorite part of that movie. And you think of all of the non-American, theatrically trained thespians who have taken roles in the MCU, and that includes people like Tom Hiddleston, Benedict Cumberbatch, of course, her co-star. Elizabeth Olsen proves to be as commanding and as formidable a presence as any of them. So commanding and formidable that when I was watching the scene earlier today from Multiverse of Madness where she misspeaks, she's trying to trick Doctor Strange early in the film. He's going to her to suss out the situation. I think he's actually calling on her for help and doesn't suspect that she's up to anything nefarious just yet, but she does betray her true intentions. He meets her in the garden. At one point, she finally just reveals herself as she truly is, that this is all a ruse. She's using her magic. It's not this garden, this orchard, whatever. After all, it's this desolate hellscape. And now she's got her costume on and she says this line, you're familiar with the dark hold and they cut to her in close up. And now she's wearing that horned headpiece and you almost want to laugh. There's something about it. That's just funny when juxtaposed against the seriousness of that line, but you don't laugh because it's Elizabeth Olsen and the way she just in that scene lowers her voice. And she says that, She's going to leave this reality and go to one where she can be with her children. She has an answer for everything. Like I said with Killmonger, you you want to, at minimum, empathize with them or understand what's driving them. That's what makes them so compelling. And Doctor Strange is challenging her, but she's always got the right response, including when she says, you break the rules and you become the hero. I do it and I become the enemy. That doesn't seem fair. The best line in that scene is what he says, Wanda, your children aren't real. You created them using magic. And she says, 
that's what every mother does. That's actually really good screenwriting, good delivery. And what I'm really getting at, Josh, is that I watch this film and I don't just empathize with Wanda, a.k.a. Scarlet Witch. I'm kind of rooting for her, actually, in this film. And later in that movie, we get that scene against the Illuminati where she, in a way that's both kind of terrifying and funny in its swift savagery, just annihilates them. Good pick, but wrong reasons. I, I kind of okay. took her off my board because WandaVision is where that character really comes to life. And I, get it. I figured, you know, obviously it did resonate for you in Multiverse of mm-hmm. Madness. Somehow that came through. But I remember sitting through yeah. that thinking, you know, man, all of the motivational work has been done. This is where those lines are blurred between the TV shows and the, and the movies, like all that motivational work was done in the series. And so as a standalone performance, um, I I thought it was a a little lacking, but I do having seen the series appreciate Wanda as a character. So, so I like the pick. I get your point, but I think that ultimately serves why I like the performance and that character so much that I didn't need the backstory. I didn't need the Wanda vision context to really get the full effect of that character. All right, my next pick, I'm glad you left this one on the table. I thought it was probably where you were going to go, knowing that we both really appreciate for decades the work of Michael Keaton. And to have him return to the superhero fold as Adrian Toomes slash Vulture in Spider-Man Homecoming, what a delight. And it's not just seeing Keaton get to do this again from a different angle. It's that it's a great character. Think about how we're introduced to Tombs here. He's this small business owner, right? Somebody we can understand and immediately empathize with. He runs a salvage company, just trying to do his job, cleaning up mess left behind by an earlier Avengers battle. There's always been this question, what happens after the Avengers fly off and they leave so many people dead and so many things destroyed? Well, here's the guy cleaning up after them, right? Trying to Just trying to make a living. Feds march in, throw him off the job, hand it to a Stark subsidiary. So already in this opening scene, we're starting to see the envy, the anger, the frustration foment in this guy. And he becomes enraged. Here's a small businessman held back by big government. So what does he do? He found some alien technology that his crew came across, salvages it, and then uses it to build a bunch of new powerful weapons, including this winged flying suit, which is pretty cool, that turns him into Vulture. Peter, you're young. You don't understand how the world works. Yeah, but I understand that selling weapons to criminals is wrong. How do you think your buddy Stark paid for that tower? Or any of his little toys? Those people, Pete, those people up there, the rich and the powerful, they do whatever they want. Guys like us? Like you and me? They don't care about us. We build their roads and we fight all their wars and everything. They don't care about us. We have to pick up after them. We have to eat their table scraps. That's how it is. I know you know what I'm talking about, Peter. Why are you telling me this? Because I want you to understand. And I need a little time to get her airborne. So it's a wonderfully conceived, devilishly performed villain. He's a little bit like uh, Walter White 
I think, but also maybe Walter White, if he'd become an arms dealer rather than a drug dealer and, and you know, voted for Trump as well. That's what we're getting here in, in Adrian Toomes. Bob Robinson uh, said this on uh, my Facebook page. It's not even close. Michael Keaton's vulture is second only to Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger. A great villain has true reasons for their villainy. Some villains are villains, well, because. But Killmonger and Vulture have depth to their reasoning for what they do. Mm-hmm. And Keaton does it. Keaton's not just grabbing a paycheck here either, right? right? He's he's having fun and also giving us those villainous notes that we have to be afraid of. You know, he doesn't sound intimidating, maybe. A small business owner who, you know, gets a fancy flying suit. No, he's scary. Keaton is scary in this movie as well. He is scary. He's a great actor, of course, so not surprising. And he's definitely on my board. Probably should have been higher. You make a very good case and you really don't need to make a strong case for Michael Keaton. I really like that pick. My third choice in our MCU villains draft is going to bring us back to one of those non-American theatrically trained thespians from another MCU movie I don't really care that much for. But my favorite thing about Thor Love and Thunder was unquestionably Christian Bale Mm. as Gore the God Butcher, which also I think would be my first pick in the draft of MCU villain names. Tough to beat. (laughs) It's a good one. (laughs) The God Butcher. And just like the Wanda pick and Killmonger, his... His pain, his desire for power, what he's seeking, it's all rooted in the pain of being a parent, the loss of his daughter. There's that real emotional underpinning to his plan, even if of all the characters we've named so far, he's the least – by the time we get to him as Gore the God Butcher, not the character we see at the beginning, he's the least human. He's certainly the least human-looking, but – We understand because of that opening sequence, because of the suffering of his daughter and his own suffering and seeing the God that he has a conflict with, we understand the capriciousness of the gods who don't help him or his daughter, and they suffer under that God. You completely get why he is on the mission to destroy these characters that he is. I mentioned that scene when we reviewed it, Josh, where... He's captured all these kids because he's trying to lure Thor to him. And of course, that plan eventually does work. He's just in the dark. He's in the shadows listening. They don't know what they're talking about, how Thor is going to come and rescue them and stuff. And then all of a sudden, he just emerges slowly into the light. Come on. Oh, look at you. I knew a little girl just like you. And she was brave. And she was smart and funny, and she liked to draw. Let me ask you a question about gods. They're meant to protect you, right? Well, where are they? Thor is on his way. Yes, I'm counting on that. He's the scariest. He's the scariest villain in the MCU just based on looking at him. That monochromatic approach they take. You think about Thor, at least the Waititi Thor films, and the first two as well. To a lesser extent, you think about color. You think about the vivid use of color. Not with this villain really contrasts them nicely, but then he's got those yellow eyes and that voice and that black ooze that he he summons and... I I don't know that I could even be on set looking at Christian Bale in that makeup 
and not get scared. And I think as one of these really strong actors, and there are a lot of them in the MCU, especially as villains, he just really fundamentally gets how to embrace the playfulness of it while also fully, fully committing. And you listen to him in that scene too. I mentioned that he's, by the time we meet him here as Gore the God Butcher, maybe the least human, he still somehow leans into his humanity. When he talks about his daughter to the kids, Bale breaks a little bit. It's almost as if he's going to cry in that scene. That's something you would not expect at all of this character, but it does also nicely set up the ultimate reversal and what we get at the end of the film. And without that humanity, without Bale showing us that, that vulnerability, I won't say weakness, that vulnerability, the end wouldn't pay off the way it does. Yeah, Gore is one of the better villains who really deserves a better film, or at least mm -hmm. a weightier film. The, yes. the provocative questions and challenges that that character brings is just not something that Love and Thunder is up to even really thinking about. So it's too bad. It's a little bit of a missed opportunity, but I do appreciate Bale's performance for sure. When you were talking about Thespian, I thought you were going to steal who I'm going with next. So it's with relief. I can say I'm grabbing Kate Blanchett's Hella. It's come to my attention that you don't know who I am. I am Hella, Odin's firstborn, commander of the legions of Asgard, the rightful heir to the throne and the goddess of death. I mean, this is this is a Blanchett pick, of course. I love how she struts in here with the same sinister sensibility she brought to Cinderella where she played the stepmother. These performances are kind of a pair for me. And just the disdain Hela has for all of these silly people who have been running Asgard so poorly compared to how she could run things. She absolutely brings that to each of her scenes. But this is also, for me, a costume design pick, which you have to consider when you're talking superhero villains. You cannot beat, I don't know if there's any costume detail I love more in the MCU than the helmet that Hela wears, which appears like it's it's like the racks of demon deer and how it comes about too, where she smooths, kind of brushes back her hair and all of a sudden her hand comes away and the, mm -hmm. the helmet kind of grows out of that. It's just such a lovely bit of character and costume design that brings everything together. So to help me do a little research, Adam, for, for this list, uh, Debbie brought something home, you know, she's a children's library in a public library, and she came across this book, an early reader, so think Dick and Jane level, called Marvel Ultimate Villains. And it was a lot of help and it's actually kind of fun how they talk about some of these characters. So since I was able to grab Hela, let me read let me read what Marvel Ultimate Villain says about her. Hela is the goddess of death. She reigns over hell, the creepy land of the dead. She wants to trap all gods and mortals in her cruel kingdom forever. So yeah, if I was a little kid, that would that would unnerve me reading about that. And I think Hela is appropriately unnerving uh, yes. in Ragnarok as well. So that's my next pick. I love how just matter of fact that is, but we have two <laughs> God hunters there with our there you go. next picks. Okay. That brings me to my number four pick. And for our sports fans out there listening to this draft, I'll set this one up by saying it's probably the equivalent of the Detroit Lions taking my 
Iowa Hawkeye Jack Campbell at number 18 last week in the draft. They probably could have gotten him a little later, maybe a little bit of a reach. I'm sure. I'm sure I would have gotten this character maybe around 10 in this draft, but we're not going to round 10. And I don't want to lose out on my guy. The fact, too, is when you go with Killmonger, you go with Gore the God Butcher, you go with Wanda, Scarlet Witch, that, that's a lot of... That's a lot of intensity, Josh. That's a lot of pain. I got to balance that out a little bit. I need a little bit more humor. I need a little bit of lightness. And I'm going to do that with Quentin Beck, a.k.a. Mysterio. Oh, you're going Jake Gyllenhaal. Okay. Jake Gyllenhaal and (laughs) Spider-Man Far From Home. I don't really know what you think about this character or this movie. It's one of, I think, only five MCU movies we haven't discussed on the show. I know that... Or I believe I know that neither of us are big fans generally of the last two Spider-Man films. Don't know whether or not that extends to Gyllenhaal. But I really like this character, obviously. That's why I'm taking him. I love that he's just a dude. He's a Lex Luthor-type villain, right? No superpowers. Just a very smart, very bitter former Stark Enterprises scientist who worked on holographic technology. And in addition to that intellect... He's an actor. Well, he's also a director and a choreographer, right? But he he understands how to manipulate his audience. That audience here includes Nick Fury. It's definitely Peter Parker. He's preying on Peter's guilt and his fears and his desires. He understands that he's got to play Mysterio as a sort of father figure or at minimum a brother figure following the passing of Tony Stark. And he understands how to play the masses. As well, preying on their fears and desires and their need for superhero figures. Doing a little bit of research, I remember reading the comics as a kid and coming across Mysterio, but I didn't know much of the backstory. And he was an actor originally. He didn't work for Stark Enterprises. He was a special effects artist, and he was a stuntman, and he was he was a magician, or he was an illusionist. And I, I was familiar enough with him, Josh, that I shouldn't have been at all surprised that he turns out to be the real villain of Spider-Man Far From Home, but I don't go into these films thinking a whole lot about them or certainly doing a lot of research. And you also do, in fairness, have to allow for whatever creative license Marvel's going to take with these characters as they they update and reimagine them. But the fact as well that Gyllenhaal is just so damn earnest and likable and talented as an actor— All of those things combined made it so I kind of fell for it. I kind of forgot he was supposed to be the villain, and I just saw him as that brother-slash-father figure to Peter. So when we get to the big reveal in that prog bar in this movie, Peter steps out, and the camera tracks forward, and all of a sudden Gyllenhaal just adopts that sinister smile and then lets out that somebody get this stupid costume off of me, just kind of puncturing the self-seriousness of the MCU. It did surprise me, and I love it. And then you've got the whole kind of fake news angle here in 2019 as well with this character. I just enjoyed the hell out of Mysterio, especially Gyllenhaal's performance. Yeah, Mysterio might have still been there in round 20 for you if you had wanted to wait. Fair enough. You did touch touch on the one thing I I liked about the character, and it's it's the meta element, right? Where he's kind of, you could look at this from one angle and see how Gyllenhaal is riffing on what it means as a serious actor 
to accept a part of the MCU, which is something that's much debated, right? The, oh, why did so-and-so have to take this part? Why are they cast now? We're going to lose them. And I do think that's something that he is playing with in his performance, which makes it interesting. All right, here's one that I think would probably be around for quite a few rounds. I don't think you're going to take it. And I think this movie overall is very underrated in the MCU. It's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, one that I really went mm. for. Some of the best action in the franchise, in the series, I think, and um, a good story as well that does include the villain, Wen Wu, played by, talk about legends, I Tony know. Leung. I mean, this is, you know, you hear about this casting, and sure, you might say, why is he bothering? But in a part like this that is so perfectly suited for his presence, for his skills, it works wonderfully. He brings, he legit brings layers of melancholy from mm -hmm. his work with Wong Kar Wai, you know, to this, to this MCU property. And it all is rooted in this estranged relationship between his character and his estranged son, Shang-Chi. So there's that element to it, that he's giving a real performance with emotional depth, relational resonance, all that stuff you want in a movie, whether it is something from Wong Kar Wai or it is an MCU film. Then the martial arts skills, as I said, this is the best action film in the franchise. And how about that beautiful bout in the bamboo forest between Wenwu and Shang-Chi's mother, played by Fala Chen? That is just some gorgeous stuff. Also rooted, as all good fight scenes are, in relationship, in emotional dynamics, not just the physical elements. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I didn't see, I scanned through a couple of, um, you know, favorite villains list as well. I don't know if I saw him when Wu come up anywhere, but like I said, Shang-Chi as a film is, is woefully underrated in my mind. And, um, I think Tony Leung gives one of the best villain performances in the franchise. I told my men they wouldn't be able to kill you if they tried. Glad I was right. Let's go home. Yeah, I don't have Shang-Chi ranked as high as you do on your MCU list, but I liked it. It's one of the last few MCU movies that I did ultimately like, and I had that character, Wenwu, at number six, and I was going to consider him at number five. I thought you would have had him off the board even before number four, Josh, but we did get a lot of support for this pick, Michael Locker. On the Facebook page said, since we're speaking objectively, it's obviously Zhu Wenwu, portrayed by the objectively brilliant Tony Leung, roguish thief, misguided father, tortured lover, underworld thug. It's a complicated role that Leung sells with a pensive glance, objectively. <laughs> Alex Orlando says, maybe it's because I'm on the heels of film spotting's Wong Kar Wai mini marathon, but it's got to be Tony Leung. Exudes so much swagger, pathos, and complexity for a character that could have easily been a one-dimensional bad dad archetype. And finally... This really does sum it up. Longtime listener Aaron Newworth says, I mean, you put Tony Leung in something and you get the goods. There you go. You do. I was really hoping nobody ever says this in any real draft or even fake movie draft ever. I was really hoping you would take my pick. But in this case, I was really hoping you would have got to this pick first. I just think it's boring. I don't have a passionate case to make for this villain. I definitely could go with a more idiosyncratic choice and try to make the case for one of them, which maybe we'll get to in our honorable mentions. 
but you've left it to me here at number five. And I'm just not going to allow for a world where somehow we get through an MCU villains draft and we both completely invalidate the proceedings by not including Thanos. Okay. I am inevitable. You have to have Thanos represented on an MCU villains list. We've heard from some different voices here in the film spotting cinematic universe supporting a few picks. Well, how about our PA, Betty Lavendero, her number one. She said, Brolin brought a spectrum of emotions to his scenes that gave Thanos quiet but intense power. Even his iconic I am inevitable line is said just at a grumble. I really love this line from Betty here. She says, you get a sense that his power is bigger than himself on every level. Joshua T. Ruth says, Thanos, he has real pathos, had a huge effect on the universe, and Brolin played him very well. Stacey Chadwick says, Thanos is infinitely more mimetic for a reason. For my money, he's the only part of the MCU that's worth anything. And Stacey capitalized anything. I think really for me, especially here at choice number five, it's what Joshua T. Ruth says more than anything, his impact on the MCU. Regardless of how I feel about the expanse of the MCU at this point, he looms the largest literally and figuratively over this universe. It's probably the right pick. I had two left to make and Thanos was one of them. So you've made my job a little easier. Yeah, we're both <laughs> resigned to maybe picking him. But but I think that, you know, I'm trying to puzzle out why that is. I will say when I first saw the concept art or maybe even just early images, my expectations were so low for Thanos mm -hmm. in terms yeah. of being another faceless CGI space troll that um, he could only impress. And I think for various reasons he did. Brolin's performance is a lot of it. It's, you know, Thanos cries and it works. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that speaks not only to Brolin, but also the tactile nature of his face, whether it's animation or makeup, whatever the, the artists did for that, they allow it to be a face we feel like we could feel, which is not always the case, especially mm -hmm. in villains, I think. And that's important. And yeah, as to that, you know, when he does cry, this is a villain who is willing to wipe out half the universe, but also complicated enough to understand what an immense loss that is. And that, too, is not something that's easy to pull off, I think. We're, there's a through line in so many of our picks, right, is that um, it's a villain that's not just diabolical for the sake of being diabolical. They have yes. set reasons. We might not agree with them at all. We might be sympathetic to one element of the reasons, you know, one of the reasons. Um, but there's some investment we have in their feelings and their own motivations. And I think you get that with Thanos. So I think you do have to. Yeah consider him these best villains are not evil just to be evil they're not like a lot of bond villains in that regard. right <laughs> yes that's they're a not good just diabolical to use your word right they they are motivated by something that we as viewers can latch on to there's a conflict there and i think as i suggested earlier the best ones are the films and the villains where you really feel that conflict where you find yourself almost rooting for the villain to succeed yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's a good point of comparison, a Bond villain, which, you know, some are maybe closer to that than others. But in general, yes. we don't get this sort of complexity. All right. So that leaves me with uh, my last pick on my board here, which I'm happy to take Ultron. Now, this is a case where Age of Ultron, not a big fan of that movie. 
but I do think that it has a compelling villain at its center and it has a compelling vocal performance by none less than James Spader here, basically playing the AI program of the title takes a lot of forms uh, across the course of the movie because you're really dealing with this, you know, speaking of the bonus show we're going to record after this, her, Spike Jones is her. You're dealing with this disembodied entity and the voice is going to have to do a ton of work then. Right. And Spader does. He's, he's scary, conniving, um, more intelligent, than anyone he's up against. We sense that, but also playful. This is not just a robot that's going about its business dispassionately. Mm-hmm. It's uh, There is a playfulness to what he's doing. I love the entrance of Ultron in this movie where he, he hobbles into this Avengers party in the form of one of Tony Stark's old damaged Robots. This is basically the first body this AI program could infiltrate. And so he looks like this deranged marionette, and we get this clever catchphrase as well. There are no strings on me, which, of course, captures kind of the threat and also the goofiness of this villain. Everyone creates the thing they dread. Men of peace create engines of war. Invaders create Avengers. People create smaller people. Uh, Children. I lost the word there. Children. Designed to supplant them. To help them end. Is that why you've come? I also like the disdain. Here we're going back to Hella a little bit. The disdain he has for the Avengers in their career. At one point telling them, You're all killers. And I think this was a point in the MCU where those questions started to be raised. I don't think Age of Ultron is a movie that really is interested in addressing them, and that's its major fault. What is the cost of what the Avengers are doing here? And that is the the place where Ultron decides to hit them, right where it should hurt. Again, the movie should explore that more, but Ultron at least decides the world would be better off without these Avengers. All right, I'm going to go back to my early reader here for for a little description of Ultron. This is Marvel Ultimate Villains. Ultron is a wicked robot. He hates humans and is very intelligent. Every time Ultron is destroyed, he rebuilds himself to be deadlier than before. This robot is unstoppable. So I'm going with Ultron with my final pick. (laughs) Okay. Again, you make a very strong case for me, like you said about Mysterio, might have gone with Ultron around round 20. So that just means we have very different tastes when it comes to MCU villains, except in the case of Eric Killmonger, really the only one we had overlap on, though, I will note again that I almost took Tony Leung there. He was he was number six for me. But otherwise, I got I got the top five on my list. I can't complain too much about how this draft came out. We will see what the listeners think, Josh. We will point you to a poll question on Twitter on Facebook, facebook.com slash filmspotting, twitter.com slash filmspotting, and our website, filmspotting.net, where you can decide who did better in this draft. Do let's have any run through them real quick. Remind me who you, you have. Mention? Okay, yeah, let's go through before honorable mentions our picks. My number one, Eric Killmonger from Black Panther. Number two, Scarlet Witch from Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Number three, Gore the God Butcher, Christian Bale in Thor, Love and Thunder. 
At number four, I have Mysterio slash Quentin Beck, Spider-Man Far From Home. And at number five, Thanos from, let's see, Avengers, Guardians, Age of Ultron, Infinity War, Endgame. I think that covers it. Okay. Yeah, we we do have very, very different lists. I have at number one, Loki from, yeah, just a ton. Number two, Adrian Toomes slash Vulture, Michael Keaton's villain from Spider-Man Homecoming. Number three, I went with Kate Blanchett's Hela from Thor Ragnarok. Wenwu was my number four pick from Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, Tony Leung there. And I ended up at number five with James Spader's vocal performance as Ultron. So if this draft had dragged out a little bit more, meaning I had taken some of your choices, Josh, and you were going to have to go a little deeper into your board. Any other villains that might have been chosen? Oh, man. I mean, I did have gore. I was considering gore. So that's another crossover we have. Other than that, um, I don't know that that demon at the start of one of the Thor movies, you know, where Thor's <laughs> hanging, spinning around. I, I really like that scene. That's a good interaction. Okay. So I'll go with him. <laughs> You're like, I've got six villains that should cover me. Is he? Is he like a He's like a Balrog. No, that's a different, that's a whole different franchise. I, I, I know that. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know where to start. A couple other names I had jotted down. Here's two that I just love the kind of meta stunt casting of. And I know some people will really be critical of this pick probably. But how about the, the original but fake Mandarin, Ben Kingsley as Trevor Slattery in Iron Man 3. Yeah, that's I fair really, game. I really like that. I love that it plays on our desire and expectation for these again big time thespians to embody these bad guys oh it's ben kingsley of course and then you're watching it and you you think the movie is guilty of this problematic casting this orientalism and then realize that no the mcu has gone meta and it's having some fun with the problem of casting a british actor to portray someone who's chinese i think that's a really funny character alexander pierce Robert Redford, he's kind of boring, suit and tie villain from Captain America, the Winter Soldier. But still, you think about Robert Redford as one of those guys, his persona anyway, is that he doesn't have an ounce of malice in him, right? I mean, who who wants to do the right thing more than Robert Redford? He actually is Captain America. But no, he's he's the leader of Hydra here in this universe. I did really like Namor, Tanakh Huerta as that character in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, even though that movie was such a miss. And the other names I had jotted down, if somehow we got down there, were those those two that you had, Josh, Adrian Toomes, Michael Keaton, Hela, played by Kate Blanchett. I don't love Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 either, but Ego, as played by Kurt Russell, I just like seeing I Kurt thought Russell you might go there, yeah. On screen. So a few names, but I got my top five. I feel pretty good about it. I still somehow expect you to beat me in this MCU villains draft to see our complete picks and to cast a vote for the winner. Go to filmspotting.net. Everyone else who died in the past stayed dead. Not her. Why? Was it the magic cliff? I don't know. That's some freaking infinity stone scientist. And some dumbass earth dude who met a girl, fell in love. That girl died and then came back a total dick. Chris Pratt there in a clip from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, the quote, worst film in the 30-plus film franchise that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. According to my co-host Josh Larson, it opens this weekend. Now, you have historically not been a big fan of the Guardians films. You have the original one at 27 on your list, Volume 2, all the way up at 21. But yeah, 
You tweeted it. You posted it on Letterboxd. You said it. You think this film is the worst film of the MCU. I turn it over to you. Go off, Josh. <laughs> Go off. I mean, let me first say, let me first first say, that was one of the good moments in the movie, that clip we just played. Sure. I thought that I was kind of waiting for that information that, you know, to to catch me up on what was going on with Gamora and so forth. And there they gave it to me, caught me up in a, in a clever, charismatic, mm-hmm. Chris Prattish way. I appreciated that. Otherwise, I mean, this was bad in expected Guardians and MCU ways, I would say the the callous violence. I think that's, that's my one main quibble with the guardians films, the over plotting, which a lot of the inferior MCU films have the over charactering, which they seem to be Mm -hmm. having more and more of the bombastic parallel action. That's incredibly poorly edited here. All of that stuff we might've expected. I had no idea how unpleasant this thing was going to be when they made the choice to explore Rocket Raccoon's backstory. A character I've always really liked. One of my favorite MCU characters, Bradley Cooper's vocal performance. The animation is astounding, even in the scenes here where um, he's animated. There's an early moment where he like hitches up his pants. (laughs) And I'm just thinking, man, the attention to detail here. So I've always been a fan of Rocket Raccoon. Knew his story, basically, that he had been experimented on and turned into this, you know, partly robotic. I'm sure there's a term I should be using here, an MCU term, but basically he was tortured earlier in his life. This is what we get. Logan, Logan Wolverine style to reference another part of the Marvel universe. Yes, that's great. Very helpful. Good. Do you want to watch Logan? We've seen him in movies. have those claws put in whatever else happens to him. Do you want to get that in a Guardians of the Galaxy film, except it's happening to a baby raccoon? <laughs> no. This, this, is not, this is not what I'm coming to these movies for. Okay. Animal abuse, animal torture. Adam, at some point, I, I was reminded of, I don't know if you remember these, it's been a long time, but there, there were like these, not even infomercials, but basically commercials for animal shelters. Yeah. Hugely exploitative, right? The yeah. camera is panning along all these cages, which with the most bedraggled, <laughs> desperate, uh-huh. yeah. forlorn creatures. With, is Sarah McLaughlin playing in the, the background of these? The, very likely. Very likely. Yeah. Huge eyes. Just huge eyes. Oh my gosh. The, the close-ups of this baby rocket's eyes in here are among the most shameless filmmaking choices I've seen recently. So I'm thinking of these ads for animal shelters, and I'm also thinking of the Japanese body horror endurance test, Tetsuo the Iron Man, which I just saw for the first time for my horror book within the last year, which is a completely fascinating movie about a guy basically taken over by metal parts and other pieces that consume him. It's horrifically disgusting. It's its own thing. It's a movie I appreciate. Again. It's not what I want in the MCU, in a PG-13 Guardians of the Galaxy film. All of that to say, I think this was a major, major miscalculation on the filmmaker's part that they needed to go in this direction, this dark, in a movie that, I mean, little kids go to these things, Mm. right? And I just don't understand the choice. You know what I watched today uh, for another project I'm doing? Uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. 
and I haven't seen it in a long time. And I know the reputation, you know, from having, and I know I've, I've seen it a number of times, but the miscalculation that that movie was in terms of the darkness of the human sacrifices and the ripping out of hearts. And it's, you know, usually people come out of, people did come out of that movie saying, what were they thinking? That's how I came out of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I might be alone on this. As I said, I've already felt like we've been desensitized in many ways to these Guardians movies that have always confused me why people tend to find them so fun. There are moments of humor for sure. And this was just the, you know, the bottom of the barrel for me in terms of unpleasantness and just a huge miscalculation, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it it earns its PG-13 rating. I don't think it necessarily strains that rating. And, you know, we both brought kids to the screening, but we brought teenagers. I brought a 15-year-old. At no point was I worried about what my 15-year-old was seeing, nor was I worried about what I was seeing. I can only speak for myself, obviously, and say that I wasn't envisioning or thinking back on and reflecting on body horror film experiences as I was watching this. It just didn't, it just didn't have that intensity to it, Josh, for me at all. But I want to go back to your tweet for a second because I saw that and I quote tweeted you and I just said three words. I said, not even close. And then I realized that that was really confusing, (laughs) that that would likely be misinterpreted as me agreeing with you. Like I'm saying it's the worst. And it's not even close. Josh is right. So I don't I, think I anyone that would tweet. ever make that mistake, Adam. <laughs> I deleted that tweet. Oh, no. And then I said, instead, there's got to be at least 10 that are worse. So I, I'm trying to point out that I think you're crazy. And then I realized after I tweeted that, that that also could be misinterpreted as agreeing with you about the quality of Guardians 3. It would just be a case where I'm also so low on the MCU that I'm saying, there are many movies that are actually even worse than this one. The takeaway here is that I'm I'm really bad at Twitter. The the facts are I'm okay with Guardians and it turns out at least when I did my very quick placement on Letterboxd I promise you I didn't think about it too hard and I don't know that I ever will, but where I ranked it there are exactly 10 MCU movies that I have ranked lower than Guardians of the Galaxy. So, you know, bottom bottom half there, if you will. You say it's the worst of all of them. I say it's the first one of the last five that I've liked enough to recommend. And I want to go back to something that Sam tweeted and asked about in our newsletter. He said he wasn't trying to be negative. He was just curious. When was the last time you cared about the MCU? And by care, he meant, you know, getting a tingle of excitement, anticipating a new installment. The options were, I still care, WandaVision 2021, Endgame 2019, or I never, ever cared. And looks like Endgame was the winner, 37%. I never, ever cared, Josh. Almost a third of voters, 29%. Yeah, I saw that. Makes me wonder why we're doing this episode. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But Michael Locker, who I referenced earlier, he said this. I voted WandaVision, which might have arrived as the MCU was beginning to wane, but which felt absolutely fresh, motivated, and emotionally impactful just the same. It's easy to pin the flagging MCU on, well, lousier movies and shows overall, but I have a hunch it's the post-endgame narrative arc that's to blame. Multiverses, divergent timelines, loops. Turns out you can make a really interesting standalone film about family, love, and sexuality with a multiverse concept at the core, but the idea is poison for sci-fi action franchise growth. Why? It diffuses our attention across story threads that naturally feel less high stakes because they are who cares 
what's happening in any given moment if it's liable to be redone, revisited, or its key players resurrected a little down the line. The decision to hinge a slew of interconnected movies on a narrative conceit that robs every component of dramatic value was an unfortunate one. Let's get back to focus stories that exist in one place at a time. Okay, here, here, preach everything Michael just said. And one thing I appreciated about Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is what he just expressed. Let's get back to stakes. Let's get back to focus stories that exist in one place at a time. Mercifully, Gunn gives us a phase whatever Marvel movie that is self-contained, more GCU than MCU. Now, I understand that you, Josh, and even I, to an extent, would maybe take issue with calling this movie focused. Charitably, you'd call it expansive. Uncharitably, you'd call it bloated. Yes, overplotting, overcharactering. Is that the word you use, Josh? Yeah, I think I, that's I, a thing. I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. A lot of characters fly in and out of this film, some literally. There are all sorts of flashbacks, but the narrative is fundamentally driven by just one objective, save Rocket. And there are no loops or timelines or multiverses to navigate. It is just a Guardians movie that doesn't seem to exist only to set up future MCU movies or tie up the loose ends of other MCU movies. Maybe it's a low bar, but I found that refreshing. And I think that self-containment also applies to Gunn's style or his approach to these films. And look, I, I don't proclaim to be a huge James Gunn guy generally, but in the newsletter this week, Sam wrote this. I was never a fan of the MCU as a project, but as a fan of movies, I looked forward to individual ones, especially as Marvel sought out directors with unique perspectives or voices, Ryan Coogler, Taika Waititi, and Chloe Zhao. As it happens, those are the films I've enjoyed the most, even if those voices were muted somewhat or compromised by the necessities of the franchise. Yes, I am a fan not only of Black Panther, but of both Waititi Thor's and Zhao's Eternals, Sam said. Sam and I agree on Coogler's Black Panther. I haven't seen Eternals. But if we're handing out credit for directors with unique voices, all of these Guardians movies are undeniably James Gunn movies, for better or worse. And I think it manifests itself in a lot of ways we can touch on. But again, might be a low bar, but after a slew of these films that all have that multiverse, no stakes problem, this one finally felt like a little bit of a return to form for me. Yeah, the self-containment is absolutely a benefit of this movie. I, I mean, if that is a very low bar, though, if that's if that's the only thing we're requiring of them. And I think we probably do split on, you know, the sensibility James Gunn brings. This goes back to what has always bothered me about these movies is not just the callousness of the kills and the violence and how it's often played for jokes or cathartic, but then there's this sheen over some of them about how you know, but the guardians are are really reformed killers who are humanists. They're they're better, and there are often speeches about them being better people, aliens, raccoons, whatever they are, followed by another, you know, flashily designed scene of them just destroying groups of people. And it's mm -hmm. the hypocritical nature of it that bothers me. Obviously, if I'm a fan of the MCU, I've come to terms with the fact that our heroes are going to kill their enemies, right? But I don't need this. And, and it happens here in volume three, too. There's this whole ridiculous subplot with the new Gamora, I guess we could call mm -hmm. her, uh, a past Gamora, where 
Chris Pratt is, you know, Quill is constantly trying to restrain her from being violent um, because she's much more of a badass in this version, right? He, he even says at once one point, like, we don't do that or we don't kill or something. And then once again, two minutes later, we're getting an elaborate, wow, slow motion, single take, you know, slit everyone's throat. Again, fine to have one or the other, but but don't like shamelessly try to manipulate me into thinking that I'm rooting for these uh, heroes who are making better choices. I, I just think yeah, it's I, as shameless as the ra- the close-ups of the raccoon's eyes. I yeah, mean, see, yeah, I you want us you want us to care about this stuff. I understand that. And how does he do it? By like plucking out parts from little animals and making us feel invested. <laughs> yes, I'm going to care. I'm going uh, to be invested in what happens to those. But I mean, does it, can you find maybe a little more nuanced way to do that? Huh? See, I, I disagree with you. And where I disagree with you is that I think it's not hypocrisy. I think, Josh, these are flawed characters who exhibit behavior and act in a way that doesn't always match their aspirations. They aren't who they want to be, but they are trying. And that's another thing that makes this, it seems to me, a gun film, and at least separate from the rest of these MCU movies, is that it is incredibly earnest in terms of its sentimentality and trying to explore, I think, this idea of what makes someone a good person or not. The other elements we get, you said the callous violence. I mean, I just know that's the price of admission with these films at this point, and the way that's balanced, the way that it is actually cartoonish. It'd be one thing if it was just callous, but for me, it's full-blown cartoonish mixed with elements of comedy. You get the swagger of it, but that is softened by that earnest sentimentality. You get the dominance of the soundtrack. And just when I was like, gosh, the needle drops, listen, just when I was like, I don't think I can take another. And I, I really, I felt that way. Not, not just a needle drop, specifically a needle drop where I have to watch the guardians as a group head into a confrontation yes. in slow motion. Yes. Just when I was ready to maybe get up and walk out of the theater, I actually loved what what happens, which is Gunn has Zoe Saldana's Gamora shake her head in resignation and finally embrace the group and join them in their slow motion stroll. So it actually becomes kind of a meta character moment. Where it's as if, no, listen, where it is, that's exactly what it is, where it's as if the character Gamora knows she's in a Guardians movie and a slow motion needle drop is happening and rejoins them. The movie's been building to that. It's a nice moment. The leash, it's a clever moment. The leash you're giving this thing. We are we are at the low point for the MCU in terms of this? our expectations. Dave Batista still makes me laugh a lot as Drax. He's good. He is, yes. I would say he's funny. I mentioned Chris Pratt is funny here as well. I think he is. Pom Clementif as Mantis brings a lot of humor. The 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 Drax mm-hmm. Mantis dynamic. Yes. was a strong point. I mean, there there are funny moments in these movies. I haven't sure. I haven't sat stone faced through all of these, right. and there is some of that here. I I will give you that. I I just think, you know, it it does go back to just that idea of I don't think there's enough nuance for this movie to really be doing what you experienced it as doing in terms of reconciling the violence and these characters falling short. The the film itself is too excited. The movie making, the filmmaking is too excited about the violence to 
in any way be interested in undermining that or having us question it. I think it's just interested in us getting us on these characters' side in one moment and feeling like they are better. We can root for them. And then on on the other hand, it wants to serve us up with some of this ultra-violence because that's what the audience also wants. And and it's just, it strikes me as uh, hypocritical, not nuanced. It seems like you might need a guest writer to weigh in on the religious resonance of Guardians 3 for think. Christian, I I don't know that I care that much to put in the work, but if the money's good, hey, I'll I'll be 20, your guy. The pitches the pitches are twenty four words or less, so uh, I'll be looking for that tomorrow. Okay, I mean, I I could come up with that. I mean, this is this is a movie. Come on, the, it, it validates the notion of an afterlife and a pretty common view of an afterlife at that, and it's also really concerned with exploring the idea that all of God's very imperfect creations are still redeemable and worthy of love. as It's as conventional a Judeo-Christian viewpoint as you could possibly find. And one I didn't expect to see in a Marvel movie. I'm not saying that's a point of praise. I'm just saying it's definitely there to talk about. I did think this was actually going to be exploring something interesting in terms of animal rights and uh, how we think about creatures who are at first considered maybe a different level, right? Isn't there the phrase at one point, save the higher life forms or something like that? And then a character is conflicted about that, don't want to spoil it. But I right. thought, yeah, okay, this is this is maybe going somewhere interesting. Mm-hmm. Didn't see a lot of follow through on that either. I'm, I'm saying that that's human rights, that Rocket is standing in there for for all of us as imperfect, flawed creations, Josh. I I like where you're going. Send this in. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hey, hey, we we don't only run things I agree with by by no means. So I will look forward to that. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three is playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. The first weekend in May is the unofficial opening of the summer movie season. That's a subject we'll get into next week with our summer movie preview. That preview, as always, will come in the form of our top five questions about the summer calendar. We will also have results from our current summer movies-inspired film spotting poll. We're asking you to choose just one film. You can only see one of these three. The other two, gone forever. You can never check them out. Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, Greta Gerwig's Barbie, or Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. You can vote in that poll now and leave a comment over at our website filmspotting.net. And if you've got a question about summer movies or a film you don't want us to overlook, please send that in feedback at filmspotting.net or find us over on social media at filmspotting and at Larson on film. Over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they're doing something a little different this week. Scott Tobias and Keith Phipps, two of the co-hosts, are going to share their picks for the best films of the year so far. I don't know about you, Adam, but this is perfectly timed for me Mm -hmm. because I know we're going to be doing, I think probably mid-June, our own picks for best of the year so far. And I'm at that point where I'm realizing already how much I've missed that I've been meaning to catch up with. And so I'm sure looking at... Scott and Keith's lists, I'll get a couple of titles that I will put on that catch-up list and we'll hopefully see before we do our own. Your next picture show hosts, aside from Keith and Scott, are Genevieve Kosky and Tasha Robinson. New episodes do post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it now, look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line. 
one more time. Time now for the, it says here in my script, triumphant return of uh-huh. Massacre Theater. I don't I don't know if we can promise that. It is the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. We're not easing into this, Adam. No. <laughs> Sound a, effects. A lot of moving parts. I mean. F-bombs. <laughs> this I, is the most I've ever heard you cuss in your life, what we're about to get to, Josh, in this scene. I think I think these are all your parts. You you chose no, the No, you've got a couple of them. Okay. Well you've got a couple lighter get, swear words. Get ready here. with the bleeps. Sam's gonna have to get out the bleeps here as we get into this scene. As you hear the beginning of it, you may not know where we're going or what the connection is to this week's show. As we get to the end, I think it'll become a lot clearer. Hang with us. Just you know <laughs> hang with us. It's always tempting, I understand, to just fast forward uh-huh. our performances, but you'll want to stick around. How else are you going to get a film spotting t-shirt or a tote bag? Exactly. You got to listen. You got to enter Massacre Theater. Josh, you started off. I'm going to give you the action. I know we're not ready, but we're going to do it. And action. Do you even know where you're going? I'll be honest. I'm a little lost, but you know, once we get back on the highway, we'll be there soon. Don't worry. We better. Now it's raining. Put on your wipers. What are you talking about? It's just a little mist. Yeah, mist. Hence the mist setting. It's a safety issue, okay? There we go. Thank you, Mr. Wizard. What crawled up your ass? I'm completely on edge right now, man. After all the shit that we've been through tonight, I'm not sure how much more I can take. Ah! <laughs> how the, how the f- did that get in here? He bit me. I've got rabies. Dude, get that cancer f- raccoon away from me. And? And? Scene. scene. <laughs> I thought you were going to yell a little more, so I, I kind of... Ah, yeah. Okay. Well, I needed to cover up the, the Star Wars... Uh, Chittering. Laser blaster. No, no, that was that was noises. Animal-like chittering. Animal-like chittering. Okay, Josh. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh is available to play parties as a raccoon if you need him. The deadline is Monday, May 15th. We'll select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. Last week here, Josh, we talked about some of the highlights of the 10th annual Chicago Critics Film Festival, which opens this weekend and runs through the 11th this week, as we usually do this time of year. We invited on one of the fest programmers, longtime friend of the show, critic Steve Procopi, to join us to talk about the fest. He's actually seen many of the films that we'll be playing at the festival, so we wanted to get his insights. Here's my brief chat with Steve Procopi. Steve, it's great to have you back on Film Spotting. Thanks for joining us. Oh, always a pleasure. I look forward to this every year. It's a, it's a, it's this is like it's a place on my calendar that just sits there for the entire year. <laughs> Are there any new wrinkles as far as programming this year's lineup, or is it just more great films? It, not in terms of the the program itself. The wrinkle this year is the that it's our tenth anniversary. I still I still can't believe we've made it ten years. From such humble beginnings out in Rosemont the first year, we only had a weekend's worth of films, but uh, but we had a couple of great guests like Sarah Polly and William Freakin, and then we've just sort of built upon that every year. I think this year we have one of, and I know I probably say this every year, but I truly believe that we we set out to have almost the entire programming team sign off on every film that we booked this year. So we wanted to make sure we all like them. And so I think that is going to translate into a much stronger program this year. I am so proud of this year's programming because we've all kind of said yes to this. There's a few I still haven't seen, but most of the titles I can, I can put my stamp of approval on there. 
You mentioned great guests, and that has been a hallmark of this festival, having a lot of talent, a lot of the filmmakers responsible for these movies at the festival to do Q&As. Give me a few highlights, a couple names that people can expect, whether they're known names or not, some of the people that audience members can expect to hear from. Well, for our opening night film on uh, on Friday, May 5th, we have the film Blackberry, which had its world premiere at South by Southwest. And we have the filmmaker, who also was one of the lead actors in the film, uh, Matt Johnson's going to be there. This is one of those great cases where we couldn't quite nail him down before we made the big announcement of the whole lineup. And then he saw that the film was playing here, and he, he just said to IFC, hey, am I going to – like, I'm going to that, right? And so so now he's – so it's not in the program, but he's coming. Uh, we also have uh, a great film playing on our second day, May 6th, called Birth Rebirth. It's it's sort of a combo science fiction horror thing uh, from a filmmaker named Laura Moss, who has made an extraordinary debut feature. And it's it's got a little bit of zombie stuff in it, but it's also but it's it's more about the sort of medical side of that. And um, and the zombies aren't eating people. They're just, you know used to be dead and now they're alive and I don't want to say too much more about it but it it looks at it from a much more scientific perspective and it's fascinating it's so confident I love this movie uh also on that day we're playing uh, a film called The Unknown Country with the co-writer and director uh, Marissa Maltz Lily Gladstone who's about to star in the new Martin Scorsese film is the star of this film as well uh, I believe this is a pickup something we saw at South by Southwest last year uh and it's just now coming out. Uh, we've also got a, a film on Sunday called Waiting for the Light to Change uh, by Lynn Tron. It's a gorgeous film. Uh, and we have the filmmaker there as well. Sort of our big centerpiece film this year is uh, A24's Past Lives. Uh, the trailer just came out recently, made everybody cry. The filmmaker Celine Song is going to be there uh, spending the day with us. That film is probably the, the the first one that's going to sell out. That one is well on the path. It's probably about a third sold out already, which is kind of unheard yeah. of this far out. So anyway, uh, I would strongly recommend if you have any interest in that, get your ticket. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of first time filmmakers this year and some of the most professional seasoned looking films I've I've seen from this many first time filmmakers. I'm very excited about that. Having just seen that trailer for Past Lives prior to Bo is Afraid, I can understand why people are excited about it and why it's selling out. You mentioned all these new filmmakers, emerging filmmakers. I think I counted potentially 15 Golden Brick nominees here. That's something we do, of course, here on Film Spotting to recognize the best films from newer emerging filmmakers. So for listeners out there who may be going to the festival, you might be hearing about a lot of these titles later, get your viewing. And now you also have some not so emerging filmmakers, people who are established. Paul Schrader's new film, Master Gardener, is playing A Fire from Christian Petzold. Iris Sachs, his new one, Passages, is another one I can't wait to see. I did want to ask you, though, as well about some of the vintage films you program at this festival. You've got one in particular I know I will be at on Monday night. Yeah, uh, the white stuff is playing in thirty-five. We've actually been thinking about playing this for a few years, and we were just kind of waiting for an anniversary to come up. And in this, like a, you know, a nice round number, so forty years, uh, we're going to play play that. That's the only feature film we're playing that day. We have some shorts playing before it, but this is just a favorite of of everyone's and. Both vintage films that we're playing, uh, Right Stuff, and then on our opening night at midnight, we're playing um, Dark City, Alex Proyas' film, 
which is having its 25th anniversary, both of those films were Roger Ebert's favorite films of those respective years. And we did not do that on purpose. <laughs> I'm not even, I, I did, I definitely would not have remembered that he picked Dark City as his favorite film of that year, but we're very proud of that. He is, he is a, a constant sort of source of inspiration for us when we program this festival. We, and it's in the, every year in the program, we dedicate the festival to him. Uh, so, so yes, it, it, that it does seem appropriate that that is the case. Both films I appreciate quite a bit. I don't believe that the right stuff made it to my little Grinnell, <laughs> Iowa movie theater back in 83. I watched it many, many times on HBO over the years. So being able to see it at the music box with an audience, 35 millimeter, that is an experience I am very excited for. I'm very, I'm very excited to check this one out and to have people watch, see that on the music box screen for sure. You can read Steve's reviews at thirdcoastreview.com, and you can get all the information you need about the Chicago Critics Film Festival at chicagocriticsfilmfestival.com. Once again, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Adam. My pleasure to introduce to you America's Mercury Excellence. We're going to the right stuff. Monday night, May 8th. Josh, do you think you're, you're going to make any screenings? It's going to be tough for me this year for the festival in general. I've got to work retreat the same week. So yeah, I can't make that one for sure. I know, but I'll see maybe towards the beginning or towards the end, I might be able to squeeze something in. Do you want me to give you some talking points for Guardians of the Galaxy 3? Yeah, I think I'm good. Okay. My thanks to Steve Procopi for taking the time to come on. The Chicago Critics Film Festival opened on the 5th. It does run through the 11th. All screenings held at the Music Box Theater. For more information and tickets, visit chicagocriticsfilmfestival.com. It is a busy cinema scene here in Chicago right now, so we did want to give you another reminder also about the Doc 10 Film Fest. That is ending on Sunday the 7th, and this is Chicago's only all-documentary film festival. Adam, I understand you've been able to preview at least one of the titles at the fest. Can you give us a recommendation? Yeah, you know I love docs, and you know I love documentaries that are about documentaries or about documentary filmmaking and the process and the problem of truth and all those complexities. So one that caught my eye is a doc called Subject. And some of the co-producers of the film are also subjects of this film. They were all previously subjects of other documentaries like The Staircase, Arthur Agee's in this film from Hoop Dreams, one of the children from The Wolf Pack, The Square, Capturing the Freedmans. We get Jesse Friedman in this movie. They all reflect on their experiences as subjects and how being part of these films altered their lives for good, for bad, some of both. It would be Totally unfair to compare subject to a documentary that we both love, a golden brick winner here on the show, The Act of Killing. Not just very different enterprises, as it turns out, Josh, but with The Act of Killing, we're investigating murder and genocide, and it's it's way more harrowing material. But I did go in, based on just a couple of blurbs, incorrectly thinking it would be, and kind of wanting it to be, a film really focused on the messy relationships between documentary filmmaker, subject, and an audience, really probing how the filmmakers represent the truth of subjects' lives, how that may or may not conflict with the subject's perceptions of their own lives and experiences, all that stuff, really be about the struggles of representing the truth in documentary films and all of those complications. And the co-directors here, Camilla Hall and Jennifer Teixeira, they do probe that. But 
it's more of an essay film. And I don't mean essay doc in the mold of a Michael Moore movie or Ross McElwee, but essay like a very well-researched term paper covering contemporary issues in doc filmmaking. It's got firsthand accounts and expert perspectives from others in the industry. It's about a lot of things, including how you deal with power dynamics between filmmaker and subject. Think about Hoop Dreams, the white filmmakers going into that predominantly black neighborhood, telling that story. How we think about that, how we talk about documentary filmmaking, like we saw with Hoop Dreams, is very different in 2023 than it was back in the early 90s when that movie was made. And so this film gets into that, including talking about whether or not subjects should be compensated for allowing their stories to be told and how much they should be involved in getting to shape their own stories. The film strives to create more informed, empathetic participants, audiences, filmmakers, and potential subjects. And with an eye on that objective, I think it's worth seeing, especially if the topic of ethics in doc filmmaking and that process is one that you're new to. Wow, that's so many of those questions are the ones we were considering when we were at Eber Interruptus doing Honeyland, the the documentary, and the main mm. figure there, Hatija, this Macedonian beekeeper. How much involvement the filmmakers had in their life, how much contribution she made to where the quote unquote narrative should go. So yeah, kind of an eternal documentary questions. I think that yes. are always fascinating. Questions that unfortunately don't have easy answers, right. but do provide a lot of material for films like Subject. It plays on Sunday, May 7th. You can view all the titles and more information at doc10.org. That's our show, Josh. It is. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, you can find Adam at Film Spotting. I'm over at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us looking ahead to next week's summer movie preview. We're asking you to choose one and only one summer release. Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, Greta Gerwig's Barbie, or Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. If you would like to join the Film Spotting family, you can do that at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early. You'll also get it ad-free. We send out a weekly newsletter that you will receive and monthly bonus shows. Adam and I are just about to record our April slash May bonus show. It's going to be a 10 year anniversary review of Spike Jones's Her. So if you are a family member, look for that soon in your feed. And you not only have access as a film spotting family member potentially to bonus shows, but to the entire film spotting archive. Included in that archive, all of our MCU reviews, I think we have talked about 27 of the 32 here on the show going back to 2008's Iron Man. That's filmspottingfamily.com to learn more. In wide release, you can see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Whether or not you want to may depend on which one of us you listen to. Out in limited release, you can live forever. This is a debut feature about a lesbian relationship that takes place within a devout community of Jehovah's Witnesses. Our friend Isaac Feldberg calls it extraordinary. Next week, it is our summer movie preview. We will pose to you our top five questions about the summer movie season. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. 
Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.